0: if a brand designs, produces, and markets and sells a product the first time around, you know, the the new product, it completely loses um, the control of any subsequent resale.
1: Welcome back to the Marketing Playbook presented by Details Interactive. Here you'll take away three game-winning marketing plays every episode to take back to your team. I'm your host, Mark Friedman, and my career has been focused on direct-to-consumer marketing, direct mail, physical retail, and digital commerce. This is episode number 37, and today's guest is Adam Siegel. Adam is an entrepreneur building a business called Recurate, a branded re-commerce startup. Formerly, he was SVP of Innovation, Research, and Sustainability at the Retail Industry Leaders Association, where he led Rela's Retail Innovation Center and Retail Sustainability Initiative. His role at Rela was to accelerate the next phase of innovation and growth for traditional consumer brands and to enhance the industry's sustainability and ethical sourcing practices. Before we get started, a quick thank you, as always, to Max Brandstetter of the Wild Business Growth Podcast for producing this episode. You can reach him at max at maxpodcasting.com to help bring your podcast to life. Let's open the playbook. Ready, break. Well, hello, everyone. Thanks for joining the Marketing Playbook podcast. Today, I'm joined by Adam Siegel, CEO and founder of Recurate. Adam, welcome to the show.
0: Great to be here. Thank you for inviting me, Mark.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for making the time. Uh, I know as an early stage uh, company founder, you must be uh, pretty busy these days.
0: Yeah, I'd say there's a lot to do, but I'm always excited to have these conversations. Uh, I have a lot of respect for the audience that you've built and um, had a chance to listen to a number of your past podcasts. So uh, I just feel honored to be a part of that.
1: Well, thank you very much. Uh, we, we are recording this uh, the end of May. Uh, looks like we are slowly but surely getting back to some semblance of uh, normalcy. How are you and your family doing?
0: We're doing all right. Uh, we had our first child just a week before COVID. And so, you know, our life was disrupted uh, even without a pandemic, but excited to get back to normal so that he can get to know his grandparents better and we can spend more time with some of his friends.
1: Oh, that's nice. Congratulations. Thank you. One of the things we like to do when we get this uh, show started, and you know, you mentioned something to me as before we got started about not wanting to talk about yourself, but you know, hey, you come on a podcast, you have to talk about yourself just a little bit. Tell us what that you know that Adam Siegel first story is. Where did you grow up? Um, is there anything in your you know early childhood that might have you know suggested that you would have you know gotten uh, a business uh, off the ground like you have?
0: Yeah, that's a. It's an interesting question. You know, you don't tend to get that very often in in your career. You know, I was very lucky, uh, raised by two fantastic parents. Um, you know, who valued education. Uh, I grew up outside of the D.C. area in a relatively affluent area, where education was a priority, and so you know, I I was set in a life direction that was um, probably pretty easy from the beginning. I was the type of kid that uh, loved building things and, and exploring. And uh, my, my parents would probably describe me as uh, the kid that would take apart the vacuum cleaner just to figure out how it works. Growing up in the 80s and 90s, when computers and the internet were first becoming a thing, I took that same mentality towards the digital world. You know, I was in the basement with our first family computer just playing around learning programming languages, learning the internet. I was always very entrepreneurial, though I don't think I would have described myself in that way, it was just about building things. Um, So I had a few websites that were mildly successful for a, a middle schooler and a high schooler, and I think I've just continued to have that bug since.
1: That's great. Well, um, I think that uh, the building of things uh, had something to do with what you wound up studying in school, but we'll, we'll come back to that. You and I um, met, um, actually, we have not physically met, as many of us uh, have not uh, these days, um, but I heard you give a presentation uh, through a, a, an organization called XRC Labs. Tell us a little bit about XRC Labs. I have uh, uh, interviewed for the podcast Pano. Uh, maybe that's one of the ones that. that you you had the opportunity to listen to. But tell us about XRC.
0: Yeah, XRC was great, especially for the stage that we were at at the time we went through the program. The short of it is that they're a retail tech startup accelerator. I actually knew them from my previous role at Rila. Part of what I did was uh, build and lead our uh, innovation program. And so I was sort of on the other side of the table, if you want to think about it like that. the corporate side trying to learn about the retail tech landscape uh when xrc started about five years ago but from the side that i'm at now uh, as an entrepreneur they uh, again felt very lucky that uh, they admitted me to their program Uh, they provide a small amount of funding uh, but really it's about the support and so you go through an eight-week program For me, it was all virtual because it was during the pandemic, but usually it would be in person in New York uh, where you get to meet with a a cohort of peer startups and entrepreneurs and access XRC's diverse network of mentors, uh, brands and executives. We went through that program towards the end of last year, uh, 2020. Uh, But still, I find myself in touch with folks at XRC, you know, almost on a a daily, certainly a weekly basis.
1: Yeah, I've had really good experience. uh, I've mentioned this on the show before I started, I think they were in their first or second cohort. And um, I was lucky enough to be you know, a mentor and have, have met a lot of good people. And it certainly seems that they provide a lot of good value to, uh, to people like you. So that's great. We'll come back to uh, you know, your business, but were they helpful uh, in fundraising um, for you? Uh,
0: well, I'll, I'll say that when we were going through the program, fundraising was not really on our mind. We had closed a pre-seed round of 500k shortly before the program started and that was going to last us through the middle of this year so it wasn't on our mind but interestingly uh you know as with all accelerator programs the very last thing that you do is a demo day and i think mark that's where you must have heard my session uh leading up to that demo day and after that demo day i got a lot of inbound interest from investors Um, And that ultimately catalyzed in us closing a seed round much earlier than we had initially anticipated. So... I think there is a direct relationship between uh, having gone through the program and being able to close that most recent round.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, honestly, having that, that is where I saw you and I thought your presentation was good. It was compelling. You know, the only mistake I made was not, I I did reach out to you. I remember uh, introducing myself. The only mistake I made was not saying, hey, how can I give you some money, you know, during that, uh, that fundraise. But who knows, maybe there'll be a, another fundraise where I'll be able to participate.
0: I'm sure we can find a chance. It's hard to pass up when, when people want to give you money, you know?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So let's go back to college. Uh, so you were at University of Illinois, aerospace engineering. So that, I guess it's a little bit different than taking apart that vacuum cleaner you were talking about. Talk about that experience and then you know, bring us into the MIT experience.
0: Well, uh, University of Illinois was actually for a master's in aerospace. Uh, I did get an undergrad in mechanical and aero from uh, another college, uh, Worcester Polytech in Central Mass. So, you know, I I, I think getting into aerospace was was kind of the budding of a childhood dream. and, And maybe this is Every boy's dream. Uh, when they look up and see planes and, and stars, they think I, I wanna build something that can get people there. I, I studied Aero. Interestingly for what it's worth, uh, while I was at University of Illinois, I was on the team that built the first satellite that came out of the University of Illinois and it exploded on a rocket above Russia. So we, we never uh, got to see it working but at that time i had started thinking more about getting into business and so i took a couple of classes in business when recruiters came from consulting firms i uh, i took a few interviews not really knowing anything about the business ro- world or or how my experience might relate to it, but uh, I just saw it as an opportunity and and started opening the door at that point.
1: And then uh, the MIT experience, um, I found this really interesting because um, you 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 had a program around sustainability, and and again as part of um, a number of the shows that I've done here with uh, brands like Thousand Fell and Fair Harbor that are both very engaged in the world of sustainability. So explain the the MIT work that you did.
0: Uh, yeah, well, first, that's when I began getting into sustainability. That was 2007 when I entered their MBA program. Frankly, I didn't know anything about sustainability. Uh, sustainability was already a thing at that point, corporate sustainability or corporate social responsibility. Brands like Nike, pioneering the space, Uh, Walmart had just announced their big sustainability program, which has continued to blossom over the past 15 years or so. So it's not like the industry or that field didn't exist, but it was at its very early stages. I actually read a book um, just before applying to grad school called Cradle to Cradle. And that was the trigger moment for me. And I even remember going back to my business school essays and almost doing a find replace, you know, for the question that asks, what do you want to be once you graduate? I wrote originally aerospace executive, even though I knew I didn't want to be that, it just felt like the right story. And I I replaced that with sustainability executive. While I was at in the MIT Sloan program, the couple year program, I just dove as deep as I could into sustainability. Um, I got a few uh, projects. I uh, interned at Environmental Defense Fund. They have a corporate partnership program. And at the time, they were just launching one with KKR uh, and took as many classes as I could. Uh, There weren't a whole lot of students that were thinking about sustainability or or cared much about it, uh, but there were a few. And so we built a community of students. And there were four professors in particular that were very focused on sustainability. They had just started one class, but I took all of their classes, even if they weren't purely focused on sustainability. Uh, and I felt like by the end, I, I had a pretty good understanding of, of the field and what I, the role I could play in it.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting, and and that's pretty early on. You know, you think about you know how much has changed in the fourteen or fifteen years you know since, and and it feels from, maybe I'm wrong, maybe it's only because I'm paying more attention to it. You know, it, it really only feels like three or four years where apparel and accessories are are becoming a bigger piece of or or more focused on sustainability.
0: Yeah, I, I'd say. Now that I've been working in and around the field of sustainability for almost 15 years, I'd say it's really only in the last five years, but maybe even more in the last two where I've noticed a transformation in the way both brands and consumers are talking about sustainability. Even the most mainstream brands you know, outside of the ones that were built on sustainable values like Thousand Fell are talking about sustainability in a very strategic way. And to me, that that feels like an evolution relative to how it was even just five years ago.
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, I spent seven years uh, running the e-commerce business at Steve Madden. And uh, just very recently, Madden came out with a sustainable line of products and and they've gone into it in a big way. You know, it's not just a, a few products, it's many products. They've done great marketing behind it. Um, so, I you know, I guess we'll be seeing, you know, even more of that. And, and like I said, I mentioned about Thousand Fell and, and Fair Harbor, they have clearly found their, their niche uh, and consumers are uh, following them and, and buying their products. So it's, it's, it's good news. We have you know, quite a lot of listeners here who um, might be early in their career. And so you came out of your, your master's and then you took your first job. What might you have as words of wisdom for you know, somebody who's going from school into their first job, maybe post-pandemic where it's not that they're working you know, from home you know, remotely, they're going to an office. What might you want to share about that first job? my
0: most general advice uh, and this is very general is listen and learn uh there's so much we all don't know about the world or the working world or specific projects or companies i still feel that way but certainly when i reflect on my 21 year old self there was a lot that i did not know and i remember one particular situation i think garnered uh, a lot of respect on my behalf uh so i was doing consulting and there was one point where we were in a meeting with our client they asked us to develop a new product using a specific language it, it, it doesn't matter what a programming language my job wasn't even programming but they just asked about it and they they asked if I kn- if I would know how to do that and I said no not yet Uh, And I think they just really, they really appreciated that. It was just kind of my mentality is just baked into who I am that you can do anything, you just have to put yourself to it. Listen, 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 really try to understand the context of the people you're working with, the organization, the types of projects, and be willing to learn
1: good advice. So 8 years at what you referred to as Rela, uh, the Retail Industry Leaders Association. Tell our listeners what that is and, you know, some of the things that you did there uh, were really interesting kind of the early days of of aggressive mobile shopping, some 3D printing, you know, things, really interesting stuff.
0: Yeah, well, I had two roles there over the course of my 8 years. That was after business school where I was just hell bent on getting a job in sustainability. And ultimately I did, and it ended up being my dream job for the time. Uh, So when I was hired in, my responsibility was to build and lead their first sustainability and ethical production program. So at that point in 2010, walmart had already announced their sustainability program target was building theirs Uh, there were people in you know sustainable leadership roles across the industry companies like cvs walgreens nike abercrombie levi's you know they all had sustainability programs at that point different levels of maturity And so as an association that represents retailers and brands like that, the trade association felt like it was also their mission to raise the bar as an industry. I was very lucky that this is a progressive trade association. And so they gave me the the reins to, to build a program that was truly valued and was pushing the limits. The types of collaborations that I facilitated were around issues like energy reduction in stores renewable energy generation we actually spun out an organization that uh, helps promote better policies at a state level for renewable energy generation Uh, waste reduction and recycling engaging landlords because often the retailers don't own their space so they need to work directly with their landlords you know the retail developers so that was on the environmental side Uh, Circular economy was a theme that had grown towards the end of my time there, and we'll obviously get to that with Recurate. Uh, But then on the the ethical production side, I led collaborations on conflict minerals, worker safety, human trafficking, and a number of other issues. Had a chance to visit factories in China, Southeast Asia, and elsewhere, and, and really get to understand what it takes to produce product. Uh, from a human perspective. Uh, so that was my first role, sustainability and ethical production. The the, the second was uh, given how much was changing in the industry, especially around 2013, I built and led the association's first innovation and emerging technology program. Uh, that was fascinating as well for very different reasons, but around that time, these companies were hiring chief innovation officers They were opening innovation labs in Silicon Valley. They were partnering with VCs and accelerators and startups and hosting hackathons. You know, it was a period of a thousand flowers blooming. Nobody really knew what was going to make them successful for the future, but they knew they needed to do something. And so my role there was to work closely with those executives, the ones that were leading transformative change, bring them out to the Bay Area and New York have them meet with uh, VCs and startups and visit some stores that were uh, employing some interesting new technologies. For me, that was also personally transformative because it gave me the opportunity to explore for myself where the industry was going.
1: Good stuff. I mean, that sounds like a really interesting um, role. So that's uh, that's great. It seems like you took a a lot away from that. Thanks for sharing. Do you have a direct-to-consumer business? I enjoy connecting with guests on this podcast because it reminds me what I love to do, strategic and tactical consulting for businesses like yours. If you'd like to speak with me about your business and see how you can add a fresh set of eyes to your team, contact me at mark at detailsinteractive.com. Now let's get back to the marketing playbook. All right. So let's talk about Recurate. So you had all this, you know, leading up, you had some experience, um, You know, in in innovation, uh, you you had the sustainability path and then Recurate. So tell us first what Recurate is, and then, you know, we'd love to hear the story behind how you got it up and running.
0: So we're a a software integration uh, that integrates directly with brands, e-commerce websites, and we enable a, a very streamlined experience for your customers, which is, Uh, to allow them to resell products that they previously purchased from you directly on your website. So you can imagine, whereas right now they have to go to Poshmark to sell an item, now they can go back to you, to the brand site, list that item for sale, and it gets listed directly on their site and can be sold directly on the brand site. It's a, it's a, an idea that seems like it's time has come because there's been a lot of interest from brands and, you know, we're, we're lucky that we're able to ride that wave uh, of interest and and grow along with it.
1: Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting. And, and I'm going to ask you a line of questions and they're going to sound like I'm challenging its efficacy. Um, not my intention. Just trying to, you know, pull out from you. You know, if I were, if you were selling to me, if I was operating a brand, it would be the kinds of questions that I might ask. And for all the the folks out there that have worked with me on the provider side, they're gonna say there's Friedman again, asking all the questions. What's the play from the brand's perspective, right? What's your pitch to them about why they want to do this? Is it about margin? Is it about controlling the product availability of this product? What, what's the hook, do you think?
0: Different brands see it differently, but I think the, the biggest hook is really around loyalty, which entails customer reacquisition, bringing customers back to the brand, as well as new customer acquisition. And so to be more specific, the way I think about it now is that if a brand designs, produces, and markets and sells a product the first time around, you know, the, the new product, it completely loses um, the control of any subsequent resale. And to me, it just feels like a waste. Like, great, you produce that one product. Why don't you benefit from the second, third, fourth, fifth sale of that product? And so, right now, if I have something that I want to resell, I have to go to Poshmark or the Real Real or ThreadUp or eBay to list it on their site. And the brand that originally produced that item doesn't know who that customer is, much less are they benefiting from the transaction. And so, Recurate is a way to bring that customer back to their site reacquire them. When the item sells, there's an opportunity to give them store credit for the sale, in which case you're keeping that customer with you. And in the meantime, you can offer a product at a lower price point to attract a different type of customer that you wouldn't have been able to attract otherwise.
1: Customer acquisition. Uh, Let's talk about, I have so many questions, Uh, integrations, platform agnostic.
0: Yeah, we're platform agnostic. When we first launched, we were solely for Shopify. Uh, but now uh, we're working with brands on Shopify, of course, uh, Salesforce. We're talking with brands on Magento and custom platforms. And so our, our tech architecture can integrate with a brand on any site.
1: When you talk with um, brands, potential brands, and I want to get back to in a second how you think about the brands that are potentials for this. Do some view it as just potential cannibalization of the new products that they're bringing to market?
0: Uh, We very rarely get that question from brands. And, And it's interesting because when I first started this business, I assumed that would be the number one question. And also, interestingly, the most recent time that we did get it was just yesterday. But besides that, it's very rare that we hear this question from brands. If I reflect on why I think people are not asking this question, it's because they know that their business is already being cannibalized. Because it's no secret that if you want to buy used, there are places to go. You can just go to Poshmark and that's what's happening already today. The question really is not about, are we cannibalizing? That's already happening. It's just happening off of your platform. The question really is, do we want to control the experience and own that customer, or do we want to give that customer away to Poshmark?
1: So cannibalize yourself before somebody cannibalizes you.
0: It's already happening. Others are already cannibalizing these brand sales. And especially, yeah. uh, just, just to add, especially with the pandemic now, brands are redoubling their efforts in e-commerce. Uh, they want as many channels as possible to attract customers to their site, into their marketing funnel, rather than going somewhere else. And so this is a, a great opportunity, even for brands, or maybe even especially for brands that are primarily wholesale, because they don't know who's purchased their product in the past, but this provides a channel for them to find those people and invite them to resell their pre-loved items, in which case they can then add those customers, the sellers, to their marketing funnels.
1: And and so if I'm the, the brand and, and somebody wants to resell Mark's Mark the brand Mark, uh, a, a shirt that they bought from me. Are they taking the photography? They're doing the image much like they would do on any of these other resale platforms and uploading it into my site through your your tool?
0: You can think of it like a product listing form uh, similar to Poshmark, where all the information about the product, except in our case, because we're directly integrated with the brand's product catalog, We have a whole lot of information about that product, which means you don't have to enter it. Our goal is to significantly reduce the friction for listing a product, and and we can do that because we complete 80% of the listing on the seller's behalf. All they need to do is add a couple of pictures of the product today, tell us the condition of the item. We recommend a sale price, which is also a point of friction on third-party sites. But again, because we have so much data about products, we can make a, a price recommendation. And then we ask them to add a little bit of a description and, and they're done. It's a, a very straightforward listing process.
1: And, and what information or, or maybe the better question is, how do you determine that the shirt that I'm giving you the picture of is in fact something that was from Mark's brand?
0: Primarily, uh, customers are listing items directly from their purchase history. So we have access to the brand's order history uh, because we're integrated with their e-comm site. If you if I had a, a, a Marks shirt, I wanted to sell it, I would go to Marks.com, I would log in, see my order history, find the shirt that I wanted to sell click that sell button and then complete the rest of the information. So for the most part, we're finding that uh, a lot of the listings are coming directly from the purchase history, which then, you know, guarantees that they own that item. That said, I did mention that a lot of the brands that we're working with are wholesale brands. And so they don't have the purchase history for individual customers. So we do give those people an option as well. But we have an approval process where we get to review their listing and confirm the, the, the shirt is the accurate shirt. At that point, we also match it up with the brand's product imagery and descriptions. So the listing at the end of the day will be complete, but there is that check in place.
1: And I, I would imagine that you'd have a similar kind of an issue. Many retailers you know, that have physical retail as well as web, uh, their point of sale transactions are not flowing into a customer's account, right?
0: Yeah, that's correct. That's correct. And we actually can import order data. So if you have two different systems that haven't previously talked to one another, we can extract the data from any of those systems and import it into ours to kind of supplement uh, but if that data is lost, or if it, if that data had never existed with the brand, then we can still allow customers to list from outside of their history.
1: And and are brands concerned about the imagery that being? Look, especially in in fashion brands, they go to great lengths to style models and and you know have it be you know have it look like the brand and um, being consistent. And now you got Mark out there who's you know taking a picture, throwing it up on a hanger on a door. Um, it's not going to the same look and feel.
0: Absolutely. So I, I'd say we're working with over twenty brands right now, and and there's definitely a spectrum. So, some are very uh, lenient about the types of products, the imagery that gets uploaded, and I think the rationale there is that they have very strong communities, and they actually like the diversity of images. So you know, I often see pictures of women wearing the dresses that they're selling and describing the parties that they went to and stuff like that, and I feel like that adds to the community orientation of of those particular brands. Uh, But then there are other brands that, no surprise, are very stringent about the types of images or just, you know, user content that appears on their site. And that's because they have a a brand reputation to protect. In fact, one of the brands that we launched with literally just today uh, is called Redone, premium denim brand. I I love the brand. It's a very fast-growing D2C brand. They have a very particular aesthetic. And so we actually worked with them to develop an image enhancement process. So if you send us images, we will remove the background, replace it with Redone's color background, a light gray background, we'll add shadows to it, we'll orient the image, and we'll do a bit of color enhancement. And so uh, you'll see that even though they're seller images, they look very on brand. It's pretty cool. Uh, so anyway, we list we we launched for sellers today, and then I think we'll be launching with for buyers to be able to buy pre-loved uh, reduns within a week.
1: Would you say that you know certain brands? You know, this just doesn't play well for in in the sense. I mean, look, nothing works for everybody, but you know, do you think this needs to be a brand that you know has some heritage, and and people are really going to want? A resale of an item, you know, I don't want to call out any brands as examples because I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. But you know, there are just certain brands out there that are generic. You can buy a product like it forever. You know, it could be a Dum Dum T-shirt. It it could be whatever. Some of those things just don't seem like they're going to play.
0: Yeah, I, I think brand matters. The brands that we first launched with, uh, frankly, the ones that we're still launching with today have fiercely loyal communities. You know, it's not that those customers are buying just any brand. Those customers are constantly on the brand's website and in the brand's Facebook group and interacting with other customers. There might already be a buy-sell trade community for that brand, could have formed organically even outside of the brand's control, but it's just because the community is so strong that they self-formed. So I do think those are the early adopters because that's where this behavior is already happening. But I actually have been surprised by the diversity of brands that we're now working with that all have successful programs from higher price point women's wear brands to lower price point, very seasonal uh, Gen Z brands uh, that maybe you would consider to be fast fashion type brands. Um, We're launching soon with luxury footwear. Uh, We're already on a number of apparel sites, gear like camera equipment, travel equipment. I mean, so such a diversity of product categories, whereas when we initially envisioned this idea, we were thinking very narrowly, It, it turns out that there's a whole lot of brands uh, and categories for which this does work well.
1: Yeah, I I totally agree. Talk about the the revenue model here. So it's kind of a three-party transaction. It feels like I've got the brand, you've got the person who's trying to sell it, and then you guys are in the middle. So how does that work?
0: At the end of the day, our goal is to give the brands as much control as they want. Our integration is completely configurable. And what that means with regard to the financials, is that every brand is deciding for themselves what methods to offer for payout, store credit and or cash. No surprise, every brand offers store credit because they wanna keep the customer. Only some of the brands that we're working with right now offer cash, uh, but then also give the brand the option to determine how much to pay out in store credit and or cash most of the brands that we're working with pay out hundred percent in credit. And for the ones that offer cash, they're paying out, say, 70 or 80 percent. So that then dictates the the cut that both the seller gets as well as what the brand gets. For Recurate, being in the middle, we do take a cut of every transaction. Uh, It's dependent on, on the specifics of the brand, the volume the customer support needs and and things like that.
1: You talked uh, a little bit about uh, fundraising. One of the, the most consistent things that I hear from you know people like you that get involved in building a business, they say, geez, I knew that there were going to be a lot of things that I didn't know. I knew there were going to be a lot of things that were going to be tough, but the most difficult thing was fundraising. How did that go for you? It sounds like maybe a little bit that it, you fell into some luck. I don't want to say you fell into it, but you know what I mean, it came to you as you said.
0: Well, I will say i I feel lucky or fortunate. We're building a concept that's idea has come. And so for that reason, we were getting a lot of interest from investors. In particular, I kept hearing several themes between those calls, you know, in terms of their investment thesis, and, and we tended to align with a few of those themes. One was about e-commerce enablement. Uh, the the services and products that can enable e-commerce uh, generally are, are being prioritized for investment. Uh, the second is sustainability. There seem to be a, a whole lot of investment dollars out there for sustainability right now. And given that up. The real real and Poshmark ipo relatively recently, and they're now billion-dollar companies. They've proven out the resale model. So the third theme that I would hear a lot about specifically was resale or re-commerce. We play right in the middle of all of those, and, and I think that uh, is a fortunate position to be in because it meant a lot of investors are still reaching out to us. I think also I feel very lucky that I have the added benefit of having worked at Reela in a role where I got to know very closely uh, a number of VCs in the retail tech ecosystem. So that gave me a, a step ahead.
1: That's great. Congratulations on uh, this, uh, this success that you've been able to to garner so far. R- really nice story. So we're at the end of the, uh, the show. Um, we do this uh, two-minute drill. One word answers. Um, you ready?
0: I don't know if I can do one-word answers. All but, right, um, we'll,
1: we'll give you two. Or, we'll give you two or three. How's that? Um, a brand that you admire or that inspires you.
0: Redone. For those that don't know it, I, I hope you look at it. It's a great. It's a great brand.
1: A favorite app on your phone.
0: My podcast app. I love podcasts.
1: Oh, there you go. That's good. Uh, the last website other than Amazon that you shopped from.
0: Peak Designs Marketplace. It's hard to ask me this question because now I have so many brands that I can shop from using Recurate, but Peak Design.
1: Something that you're not good at, but that you wish that you were.
0: Related brand marketing and and visual aesthetic.
1: Charitable organization that you're passionate about.
0: Very much the Environmental Defense Fund.
1: Okay, sticking with that uh, environment. Uh, If you had one superpower, what would it be? Being able to
0: sleep well with a newborn.
1: (laughs) Well, I'll tell you, I'm way past newborns, and I don't sleep well, so um, I'm not sure what that's going to say for you for the future. Other than family, what's your most prized possession?
0: You know, for working in retail and consumer products, I, I don't seem, I'm not a very material person, but I love the outdoors, and I have this Gregory backpack that I've had for the last 20 years, gone around the world with it several times, and many a night's camping.
1: Very nice. Adam, where can people reach out to you on social media? Should they have any questions and and want to learn more about uh, your company?
0: Just search for me on LinkedIn, but you can also find me on Twitter at Recurate.
1: Hey, uh, Adam, great to see you. Thanks so much for uh, the good conversation. I wish you the best of luck. Thank you. That's it. Today's game ball goes to Adam Siegel for coming on the Marketing Playbook. To me, today's three game-winning marketing plays were as follows. Number one, listen and learn. That's good advice for all of us, but particularly for those just getting started in their careers. Take on anything and everything that people are willing to throw at you, even if you do not know quite yet how to do it. Make yourself invaluable by demonstrating that can-do attitude. Number two, cannibalize your business before others do it to you. Adam noted that there are already many companies that have proven the concept of resale. This is certainly not for all brands, but if your products were already being sold in a secondary market, why not consider having your customers do it as part of your ecosystem? And number three, the circular economy is seemingly here to stay. Sustainability is a key to many businesses' core strategies these days. Are you playing in this space? And if not, what can you be doing to support these types of initiatives? Thank you, Playbook Marketers, for listening to another episode. If you want to check out more pages of the Marketing Playbook, Make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast spot and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at at detailsinteract and learn more at detailsinteractive.com. Until next time, the devil is in the details.